0: to hell is for It's for september 2012 i am writer hyphen critic hyphen earlier version of paul nelson lee zachariah and with me as always is
1: hi there i'm uh writer hyphen director hyphen uh looper ready to uh take lee out paul anthony nelson what What? that can't work (laughs) and with us today is our very special guest
2: Hi, I'm Perry Cummings. I'm actor slash writer slash passionate Spanish actor on the verge of a nervous breakdown.
1: (laughs) Hey, a little bit of a clue for later on. (laughs) Welcome,
0: Perry. Uh, Very happy to have you with us. Thank you. Uh, Even if you haven't exactly seen any of the films that came out in September, but that's okay.
2: No, I haven't, so you'll have to tell me what I've missed out on.
0: Well, as we hinted in in our intro, uh, this month saw the release of Looper, the uh, long-awaited third film from Ryan Johnson, who did Brick and uh, Brothers Bloom. I, I thought it was a fantastic premise, the idea that... A hitman, you know, takes out people from the future, and then suddenly has to take out his future self. Like that's the idea is you close the loop. I, I like that it's not just high concept, but he explores it to its fullest. There are so many films that have a high concept, and then just turn it into an action film. It has a very specific internal logic, so that uh, its version of. Uh, what a what a time travel paradox is, is, is very well thought out and they kind of play with that in, in a in a big way.
1: Yeah, I really, really loved this film. I had very small issues with the narrative. It does leave itself a very handy get out clause. Um, yeah. that cheats a little bit, but you know what? It's too damned entertaining to matter. Like I, I just found that this is possibly the most entertaining film I've seen this year? It's really smartly thought out. It's, um, as you say, uh, a lot of the possible repercussions of meeting one's future self and what it means to know one's own future and and all this sort of thing are, um, are well explored. But it never sells out its characters emotionally too, which I really like. And it's weird because people have asked me, well, what makes it different to other time travel movies? Why is this one worth seeing? It kind of looks like a lot of movies in one. And it's really hard to describe. It's It's just... It's just done better. I mean, that's the thing. Like, you can see all of its influences on its sleeve, but at the same time it doesn't feel like any of them. Um, like, you know, you can see bits of The Terminator and you can see bits of um, various other things, but there's not – it doesn't feel like any of those films. Um,
2: and it and it doesn't sacrifice uh, character for plot?
1: No, no. That's the great thing. The, the the characters all are really well drawn. The other thing with this film too is that it's just so – it's. Directed with such confidence, like, there just felt to be this such a command of the way he unfolds the story, and there are so many beautiful touches, and it's really classily put together. I can see why Toronto chose this as an opening film. Like, it seems a bit of an odd choice to open a huge festival with a genre film, but it's a bit higher class than that and i think it's because of the 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 confident way in which the story unfolds and the emotional attention given to the characters but there's also just it's also really witty it's also really funny it's um i love watching joseph gordon levitt's bruce Willisisms. it's really good like he's really studied (laughs) yeah totally in terms of um yeah expressions and voice and the way he cocks his head and, and all sorts of little things willis looks like he's he's turned up to play which is really nice yeah, I just think uh, Ryan Johnson's gone from. I wasn't the biggest fan of The Brothers Bloom. I kind of need to watch it again, but I was a massive fan of Brick. And I think this, I think Looper falls in somewhere in between, like closer to Brick than than Brothers.
0: I actually chose to see it as a sequel to Your Sister's Sister, right? Because <laughs> um, Emily Blunt's in both, and in Looper she's talking about her sister a lot. And I thought, why the hell not? Let's unify these universes. <laughs> um, I don't know if you've seen my, Your Sister's Sister yet. Uh, I, I know, Paul. You're a, you're a fan of Hump Day.
1: Yeah, I am big fan. I'm looking forward
0: to seeing this. Yeah, it's better than Hump Day. Like I love wow. Hump Day, but she's just she's really going. She's got one of the best voices in that. And I guess she's moving away from it now. But it, that, this that is mumblecore movement.
1: Writer director Lynn Shelton that we're talking about here.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And everything she writes is so funny and organic and and, and moving. And it's like she's she's taken a uh, a really tired romantic comedy idea and made it real. Now, Pez, you've seen this, haven't you?
2: Um, Yeah, this is one of the few films that I have seen and, and I agree. I think it was great. But for me, even though Emily Blunt's fantastic, I think that the girl that plays her sister really steals the movie. I think that she's just wonderful. Yeah. And she's playing such a hard character, like some difficult choices, but... All of them, she pulled off with, you know, sympathy and compassion, and I think she's great. And she's also having a really good year this year.
0: Yeah, she's turning up in everything. Um, mm. R- Rosemary is... DeWitt. Yes. Ruby Sparks is a, is a tough one because uh, it's a film that takes the idea of the uh, that that manic pixie girl cliche. You know, the 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 crazy free spirited girl that turns up in all these films uh, purely. To save the the male lead, and she's just there to sort of service him in a sense. And it takes that idea and look. I'm really on the fence about this film because I think it deconstructs it really well, but I also think it does the things that it, the films it's criticising do. It, it it has it tries to have its cake and eat it too. Yeah, I see. did she
2: write the film as well? Yeah, she Zoe did.
0: Kazan. Uh, what granddaughter of Alia Kazan? Um, yeah, she wrote it. And that's Probably. that's actually really interesting because she plays a character who is brought to life through writing, and so the idea that <laughs> the written character wrote the film that she's mm. in has that like nice layer of meta to it. That that's actually a nice that's the best meta thing in the film. The worst is when this author is talking about oh the difficult second album, how do I follow up this big hit? And it's the the, the directors of Little Miss
1: Sunshine, yeah, and it's a little. I think that's a little. That's a little strained. I I didn't read that level at all. I just I just generally thought that he was this kind of you know young Truman Capote style character. But I do agree, it's a problematic film. I think I think on the surface, I think it's I think it's really enjoyable. Like I think it's really funny. Uh, I think all the cast are really good. It sort of propels along, but then it says some slightly dodgy things about men and women. I think I don't know why when Ruby starts getting off the leash a bit that she, her all her worst tendencies come out all of a sudden and it's kind of like oh so if women aren't being controlled by the writer they're just horrible people then like <laughs>
0: well that, that's where i think the message is muddled they're never clear whether they're saying oh women are crazy or men are, are con- still controlling them or can't deal with their or can't right. deal you know, with not controlling yeah yeah it's it, it's a bit of a muddled message i find um, yeah
2: i'm intrigued to see it 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 kind of sounds to me like especially with the actor um, writing the film that it's a little bit of an agenda piece that she's got a particular agenda that she really wanted to put across and perhaps some of the characters have suffered because of that and perhaps the actual story has suffered a little because of that
0: like we we're talking about looper exploring all the facets of its idea mm. and Ru- ruby sparks sort of falls between a charlie kaufman film which will take an idea like this and really run with it. And a film like My Favorite Whipping Boy Stranger Than Fiction which takes <laughs> yeah. a crazy
1: idea and does one thing with it that isn't that interesting.
0: Mm.
1: Kaufman light. And I think the ending really sells out the film too. I think whether you're yep. whether yep. you're prone whether you're aware of the subtext or not because I think a lot of audiences might just go in for a fun rom-com and I think for the most part they'll have a good time. Except for that. Yeah, I think the ending will let you down on either level. I think all the characters get off really easy. Yeah, I agree.
0: And can we please have a moratorium on films in which people praise the writing, this amazing writer, and, oh, this listen to the words, they're fantastic. Films like this, and again, Stranger Than Fiction, and that recent uh, film with Bradley Cooper, The Words, in which after seeing the praises of this fantastic writer, what we hear is the worst, (laughs) (laughs) honkiest prose that you... Maybe high school level, maybe. Like that, just yeah. Anyway, that's my bugbear. It,
1: it's it's that thing, is it? it's like yeah, when someone in a film is meant to be a great filmmaker or whatever, and then we see the clip of their film, and, and it's like eh, it's really not very good. Uh, what did what do you think of *Beasts of the Southern Wild*? Well, this is a film that seems to hit some people directly in the heart. There, I've heard of people having this transformative experience and being quite profoundly moved by it. I, there was a lot
2: of Facebook hype about it after it screened at Miff. I remember.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I've got to say I'm not quite on board with all that. I was engaged by the film. Like, I think it's very beautiful looking. I think that it's engaging. The most extraordinary aspect of the film is it's something I haven't seen before, which is a post-apocalyptic film set today, mm. set in our own day and time, and yet there's... This post-apocalyptic land, which is basically the surrounds of Louisiana post Hurricane Katrina, and they're sort of walled off in this place that's called the bathtub because if there's another if there's another big storm, it's gonna flood. But it's a bunch of it's a community of people that that this is their home and they don't want to go anywhere. And I know there's this kind of magic realism kind of fantasy thing going on, but the whole thing just felt so artificial to me. It's it, the entire thing. Like at first it was just you know, certain images, but the more I get away from the film, the more the entire film just feels like a construct. And that really stopped me from being emotionally moved or engaged by it. But aesthetically, um, yeah, I think it's, it's quite a nice piece, but it, yeah, it d- didn't hit me.
0: What about you? Well, I'm, I'm one of the people who was totally won over by it. I mean, it was the imagery, it was that. Like, as you say, the, the, the post-apocalyptic film set in our world, you know, today, and it's which is, which is, you know, very pertinent to the fact that we just let these areas sort of rot almost. And I think that's a strong social commentary, which I love about the film. But what I really responded to were the elements that I felt called back to sort of Greek-Roman myths, and I, I really want to go back to explore this because I sort of only realised it about halfway through. It's trying to do something very, very mythical and it's calling on a lot of cultural myths from thousands of years ago that really sort of build up this sense of, of grandeur. And that, that, was what, that was what I responded to more than anything. I mean, I love
1: Hush Puppy. See, I loved her performance, but I felt her, a lot of her dialogue almost verges on the Forrest Gumpish. <laughs> and well, one day there I, will I, I
0: like to think of it as the, Forrest Gump done well. Yeah, let, let, let's say that
1: <laughs> one day there will be—they will remember there will be a girl named Hush Puppy. Like it's just kind of like—but there will. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't uh, think uh, it's in any way a bad film. Like sure. I think it's perfectly fine, but it just didn't hit me.
0: On the road finally came out after um, what I believe was 370 years of development. <laughs> um, they've been trying to make this film for. Ever, you know, Coppola tried all these, all these people tried, mm. and they finally did something kind of predictable but intelligent, and they gave it to Walter Sullys, who uh, did the Motorcycle Diaries. So it was um, a bit of a cliché choice, but I, I think a really good one. I, I really feel On the Road captures the that that stream of consciousness sense of the book. I, I feel the film nails this mostly. It's it's. The only problem I have is that I never quite feel as immersed as I feel I should, and I don't know whether that's the cinematography, maybe we're too close in on them too much, or maybe the editing is, you know, there's some element that I can't quite identify that keeps me from being completely immersed.
2: I almost don't want to go and see this film because the characters in the book, I've got such strong visual images for all the characters in the book that I almost feel that... My images and um, what I'm seeing on screen are going to kind of collide, so it's going to take me a while to adjust.
0: No, that's that, that's fair enough. I do. I will say that I think the cast is fantastic. Even Garrett mm. Hedlund, who I made fun of, you know, after Tron. Um, I he can- was fine in Tron. <laughs> no, he wasn't. But uh, I kind of have to go back a little because he's really, really good in this. And he and uh, Sam Riley, um, who I've always uh, I've loved since I saw him in. Um, in uh, the Joy Division film. Control. Yeah, Control. Mm. They're both fantastic. Uh, Kristen Stewart is fantastic. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, like, I've, I've never really felt one way or the other about her, but, but mm. she's really good in this. That's great. Uh Viggo Mortensen as, as Bull, who is the, obviously, the William S. Burroughs character, and, and Mortensen does such a great mm. Burroughs in the film. It's almost worth seeing just for that.
2: Yeah, that sounds good. Actually, I think you've convinced me.
0: Yes, <laughs> and yeah, I just want to uh, quickly mention Monsieur Lazare, uh, French Canadian film. Just this beautiful and and oddly funny for, for a film that's sort of about kids dealing with grief, and that sounds really off-putting. It's really, really funny and really, really sweet. It's kind of isn't it? Like... Their
1: teacher dies, and then their sub, Monsieur Lazare, is their substitute teacher. The... Yeah, that, that's it.
0: That's it, and it's and it's kind of the. The inspirational teacher story, if it was realistic, yep. if mm. if his methods weren't ac- not not like the administration doesn't understand his methods, but it's like no, actually, they're good in some areas, not great in the others. Some of the kids respond, others don't. You know, it, it's 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 a very realistic take on that that old you know cliche, but I, I definitely recommend seeing it. It's one of my favourites of the year, and wow. and uh, got to end on. Uh, Laurie, Lor, Lorraine,
2: Lari? Yeah,
0: the new, L- uh, the new. I've Kate heard Shawra Laura film. as well. Laura. Okay. Yeah, it could be that. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's a new film from from Australian director Kate Shortland who did Somersault, and it's entirely in German, and it's a post World War II film about the children of of, of uh, Nazis, sort of what happens to them after the war. I am not a fan of Somersault at all. This film, okay, I can't fault it. I there's nothing about it that I think she didn't do well. Um, as opposed to Somersault, where I can identify the things that I had a problem with. I don't know why I don't like this film. This new one. Is it a um, bit too
1: self-important? Maybe is it sort of well?
0: Feel I don't know. I I, I love. <laughs> I love quite a lot of pompous, self-important films, and, and uh, I love unrelenting films. This one's unrelenting, uh, pretty much, and and I, I tend to respond to those. Well, I, I just can't identify what it is, but I, and because so many other people have responded to it, I, I'm wondering if it's me. Uh, it's kind of the holy motors syndrome where I'm I'm not trusting my own reaction to the film. Or maybe just you just got a problem with Kate Shortland. Maybe look honestly, if. If it wasn't for Somersault, I'd be more willing to sort of give her the benefit of the doubt. You know, I, I, I want to hear everyone else's thoughts. Mm. So uh, viewers, write in. Comment on our yeah. site. Let so me We'll know. see it
1: and then we'll re- re-record it next month. Um, can I just, can I just give a quick shout out? I know it's, it's gone off at the cinemas, but I think it's moving to its best available venue, which is DVD. And on DVD, I really, really think, uh, if you're a fan of action or raucous action comedies or seven, '70s Burt Reynolds films, or just fun on cinema, um, you should check out Hit and Run. Really? Yeah. It's the, uh, Dax Shepard's film, um, that he co-directed with, um, with, um, uh, David Palmer and it's um, it's basically a little indie vehicle made for two million dollars it's starring Dax Shepard his partner uh, Kristen Bell of Veronica Mars fame has some great um, bradley cooper plays the bad guy there's lots of great comedy cameos in here um, from jason bateman to david keckner and so on it's just a really fun beer and pizza flick it's a chase movie essentially but it 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 has some nice little twists on formula and twists on character and it goes off in these kind of seinfeldian digressions bradley cooper's beat beats up this guy because he feeds his dog in some standard dog food because he's <laughs> he's a dog lover, you know. Okay. Um,
2: I think that's almost a personal story because uh, Kristen Bell is such a dog lover as well.
1: Yeah, Animal <laughs> Crusader, yeah, I think there's yeah. a little of that in there. Um, Kristen Bell <laughs> takes Dax Shepard to task over his flippant use of the word fag. It's just really endearing and fast-moving and a little bit sort of Cleverer than it seems, and I think that it's it's just this plucky little flick that, yeah, I think is a great beer and pizza DVD movie.
2: It's another actor-generated piece as well, too, which is interesting.
1: Indeed, as we will soon uh, delve into. Ah. <laughs> segway, segway, fade up music. <laughs> <laughs> Next month sees the release of the critically acclaimed film Argo, which is directed by Ben Affleck and was just talking about Hit and Run, directed by Dax Shepard. And I just wanted to have a little bit of a look at actor-directors, which has been a phenomenon for quite some time now. It stretches all the way back to Chaplin, who was probably one of the – Chaplin and Keaton was one of the first. What do you think, firstly, motivates actors to become directors? And secondly, what do you think – that that double duty adds. It's interesting that we're discussing this because we are we we do talk about hyphenates and an actor director is a classic hyphenate. Mm. And yeah, I was just wondering uh your thoughts on on those two subjects on yeah whether what what would motivate the decision and what that adds and some examples.
2: It's great because you're talking about actors and it's what's my motivation. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I think um Look, it's a fascinating topic what drives an actor to become more involved with um, the filmmaking process, whether that's writing or directing. But specifically, I I have a little theory about this. I think that there's... Possibly three types of actor-directors. I think that the first type of actor-director is the star vehicle. And, you know, you're looking at Laurence Olivier, uh, Kenneth Brenner, perhaps um, Sylvester Stallone. It's very much about their vision of a piece and they put themselves very much front and centre. And virtually um, every
1: comedy actor-director ever ever as well, from Chaplin to Ben Stiller.
2: Absolutely, especially those um, silent guys like Buster Keaton and um, Charlie Chaplin really fall into that. And often they're groundbreakers. Um, you know, they bring a, a new energy, like if you're looking at comedy or if you're looking at Shakespeare, they bring an exciting new energy and a new direction with them. The second type I think is really fascinating, and a lot of the American actors I think fall into that. And I think that's the actors that become more interested in the big picture, and you're looking at people like um, Ben Affleck is a really great example of this. I think that as an actor, you don't feel as if you have a lot of control over the whole project. And it's wonderful to sit back and to be able to look at the the whole project and, and put all the pieces together like a jigsaw puzzle. I think they're a really interesting category. And the third category, which is really my favourite are the people that often only make one film and I'm looking at people like Gary Oldman, um, Paddy Considine is a fantastic example of that where it's an incredibly personal story that they need to tell um, and they're often not in it.
1: Charles Lawton is but a that's,
2: good one. Mm. Yeah,
1: Tim Roth yes. with The War yeah. Zone, um, mm. uh, Samantha Morton with The Unloved a few years ago. Yeah, it's that one story they're just burning to get out. And it's and it's clearly something that they really, really need to explore but not necessarily yeah. act out. Maybe they're too close to it. I don't know. Yeah, that's a really interesting theory.
0: I heard an actor say years ago, I can't remember who it was, that... Uh, actors are almost better placed to be directors than mm. directors because actors work with a whole range of amazing directors whereas directors <laughs> don't. So you look at someone like Clooney whose Good Night and Good Luck is I think pretty much a perfect yeah. movie and he's worked with the Coen brothers, with Steven Soderbergh, with Wes Anderson, with all these amazing mm. directors.
1: And Joel Schumacher.
0: And Robert Rodriguez. And and <laughs> and he's uh, and so he's, he can sort of pick and choose the best Absolutely. of them. Absolutely.
2: And he's um he's a beautiful director. And he'll often play um secondary roles in his films. So it does look like he's definitely concentrating on the film as a whole is the really fascinating thing for him. And putting this together.
1: And same with Warren Beatty's another number two as well, you could say. Um <laughs> it's that yeah, it's like they, they, they become more interested in how the machinery works and then controlling that and it's not so much about group one which is like i think group one's attitude is very much that this is my this is how i see comedy or this is how i see shakespeare or this is how i see my persona working on screen in terms of stallone like stallone was used in a lot of thug roles and lots sort of things like no this is how i see myself and it's rocky and it's john rambo and it's uh, all that kind of stuff um I do
0: find it interesting, and I hadn't really thought about it until this topic was, was suggested, that so many actors, like, it, I, I actually can't think of too many examples where they've completely gone off the rails. And having said that, I know that there are probably a 100. But, um, <laughs> but for some reason, the one that... I, I that, would
2: that, say perhaps Kenneth Branagh's Frankenstein.
0: Yeah, oh, yeah, but I'm, I'm thinking, like, <laughs> or I'm thinking debuts. Like, his debut was Henry V, yeah. which is <clears throat> unbelievable. Yeah, is awesome.
1: Cough, and, and someone cough like Dan Aykroyd, cough. Sorry? Cough. Dan Aykroyd. Cough. Okay. All right. That's fair enough. <laughs> Nothing in <the> um, trouble. <laughs> but, uh,
0: but I was thinking of someone like Drew Barrymore who did uh, It? Awesome. That's and, right. You know, I don't love the film, but it's really, really competent and confident. And I think there's something to be said for having spent so much time on sets and watching the filmmaking process that it must almost yeah. feel like second nature to them by the time they get behind the camera.
2: Mm. And all good actors have a fantastic curiosity as well, so I think that breaking new creative ground is a natural step for a lot of actors.
1: And it's and it's often a way to deliver a passion project to the screen. Like there's something like um, mm. like like uh, Kevin Spacey's directed two films. One just seemed to be kind of an experiment for something to direct, which is Albino Alligator back in the nineties. Oh yeah. And the other one is a massive passion project of him of his called the, Beyond the Sea. The Bobby Darren. Yeah. Because he adores Bobby Darren and he's like the writer, mm-hmm. director, producer, star <laughs> trying to play him over 30 years or whatever. Like his first film seems to indicate he's in the second group, and the the Bobby Darren film's almost a cross between the first and third groups. Like it's obviously a story he's really <laughs> wanted to tell. He's a yeah. crossover. This is a very odd conversation given uh, I've long since forgotten what all the groups
0: are. But um... <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think that. Um... Two of the films that would definitely fit into that third category are in my all time favorite films, and that includes, of course, Gary Oldman's *Kneel by Mouth*, which is incredibly brutal, um, difficult to watch, but it it's it's amazing. It, you almost feel privileged to watch it because he's letting you in on something that is so intimate about his, you know, about his life, about his experience of being a human being, and I think that's one of the reasons why. I am so obsessed with film and theatre is, you know, to share the experience of what it's like to be a very flawed human being. And I think those films are wonderful in that way because you're led into something quite personal and quite unique.
1: Yeah, it is. And it's almost an extension of acting as well because acting's all about vulnerability and revealing yourself. Mm,
2: absolutely. And
1: that third group is almost that cinematic extension of that. It's it's that ethos given imprinted on the film almost and, and spread to sort of every department. It's, it's kind of amazing. So I think that's one, I think that's a thing that actors really lend to the process. One, as you said, Lee, they really lend that sense of competence because they've been on so many sets and witnessed so many talented directors, and they've always got in their head, this is what i do differently, this is what i you know.
2: And, and you do, particularly in their first films, it's fascinating what Lee was saying about being on set, you do see them wearing their influences on their sleeves, particularly if you look at Paddy Constantine and Tyrannosaur, you're looking at him working so closely with yeah. Shane yes, Meadows.
1: Yes, yeah. There's definitely a lot of Meadows there. And, and, with, and with Clooney, yeah. there was a lot of Soderbergh in um, Confessions of a yeah. Dangerous Mind and... And so I think that there's that competence from experience, but there's also that extension of, of revealing oneself in another way. It's and then there's the vanity projects as well. You know, whether it's Eddie Murphy's Harlem Nights, which I really enjoy, or in the worst case scenario, Dan Aykroyd's Nothing But Trouble, which he uh, dreamed one night and decided to write a screenplay, and that's what it's like. Yeah, maybe not go straight from the subconscious to the screen. Yeah. If, you, if you're not David Lynch, don't do that. <laughs>
0: Now Perry, please tell us whom have you picked for your Hellas for hyphenets filmmaker of the month.
2: Oh, I'm so excited about this. I've picked Pedro Almodóvar. Woohoo!
0: Fantastic. Woo-hoo! The great Spanish auteur. So Pez, what 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 made you become a Pedrophile?
2: Um, the very first um, Pedro film that I saw was Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, and I was completely addicted to Pedro. After that, I think that I rushed back to the DVD store and got Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down, and um, Kika. <laughs> and by the time I watched Kika, I just thought this f- filmmaker is. Amazing. He is creating a world, you know, as me as a young passionate actor that I wanted to be a part of. I thought that the Amoldovar woman and the Amoldovar world was just an incredibly wonderful, real, and fantastical place. And um, it shocks me that people don't know about Pedro, <laughs> that people haven't seen Pedro films, you know. And um, I think that I picked him because I want the world to, you know, become part of the Pedro Club. You know, it's almost like a secret society. You go up to people at a party and you say, do you know Pedro? (laughs) And um, if they say yes or no, you know that you can talk to them. Um, Look, I think that his films are wonderful. They're so, you know, vivacious and um, full of life and colour that I just adore him.
0: I think he is sort of known within film circles, but really only from all about my mother onwards. So mm. there's all this stuff that came, you know, before nineteen ninety nine. You know, Absolutely. this whole body of work that, that
1: isn't as prevalent as I think his recent stuff. Yeah, I think t- I think Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down was a bit of an SBS staple for a while. I think Oh, was it? it was the kind mm. of thing people would sort of tune in and go, Hmm, what's that? You know, when back when SBS was kind of you know, known for more for its more salacious elements. Um, I think that was kind of a popular thing because I remember that sort of being a thing before I'd heard of Almodovar. But uh, yeah, but all about my mother was sort of, I, I guess it's when the English language world kind of, you know, took him on. By the way, I, I believe it's Almodovar. I, I think that's
0: the <laughs> correct pronunciation. Not
1: Almodovar?
0: Al Almodovar. Yeah, you Almodovar. put the emphasis in the middle
1: there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Right. Just
2: Pedro. Pedro to his friends, <laughs> <Pedro>.
1: absolutely. <laughs> now, he's sort of a household name, but not. It's, it's weird because he's the most, I believe he's the most successful and decorated career to ever, uh, a director to come out of Spain, at the very least since Louis Bunuel. And definitely, you know, post-war modern era, he's kind of, I don't think there's any other Spanish director that's kind of in his league as far as accolades and, and popularity.
2: Perhaps there's a right time to discover Pedro. I think that you have to be ready for Pedro films because one of the wonderful things about Pedro is that he loves to shock. You know, his films um, surprise even me. There's fantastic moments and as we talk about some of the films, you know, I'll highlight some of those moments that, you know, shock even unshockable audiences. There's one fantastic moment in um, uh, Talk to Her... Where he has this whole silent film called *The Shrinking Suitor*, and if you haven't seen *Talk to Her*, you have to see it just for this um, short film. It's one of the most shocking things that I've ever seen.
1: <laughs> it's awesome.
2: Yeah. <laughs> now, a
0: lot of his early stuff, nearly all of his short films, and even his first feature are lost. Like his first film, his first feature. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is translates to "fuck, fuck, fuck me, Tim!" <laughs> Ex- exclamation a the his shorts are, are all missing. And uh, so, w- what's the story behind those?
2: Oh, it, it's amazing. He, Bolly's um, actually been doing some research on this, and um, he was actually part of a underground punk movement. And he was a perform- he was a performance artist himself. And he used to they used to go out and make super eight films. Um, but for Pedro, which is one. of the reasons why I love him so much. Pedro's films are all about story and um, because there was no um, sound on his films he would stand by the projector and he would voice all the characters and um, he would even sing, he would write songs and he would have a little tape recorder in his pocket so he would play a soundtrack so he would create live at these (laughs) filming events the soundtrack to his silent Super 8 films. (laughs)
1: Oh, <laughs> that's awesome Jeez. That's amazing Yeah, so do all the voices <laughs> he play all the songs The movement he was part of was called La Movida, by the way mm. um, But the, the things that are all missing all have something in common They're all his Super 8 works He made 10 shorts and one feature on Super 8 And that's all the lost stuff And he said because the film was really flimsy And kind of after being played in Madrid bar, uh, bars and clubs Because that's where he used to play his films mm. During the 1970s They all just kind of degraded and fell apart and and I think he's still got a copy of Fuck Me Fuck Me Fuck Me Tim, but he won't um he considers it amateurish and never wants it to be shown and has Well I've got a
0: surprise for you because I no, no sorry, I, was gonna, I was gonna try and
1: do that every month, but no, I haven't seen it. Um, so, so the first available work is his first sixteen his only sixteen millimeter short Salamate. Yeah, which ah, yes. feels very pasolini. Yes. <laughs> it's sort of this irreverent take on a Catholic you know, sort of Bible tale. But it's surprising. I thought it would be more blasphemous, but it's really not. It just – it's very reverent. It just kind of has a lot of fun with it, like Pasolini. Exactly, yeah. And
2: it has that fantastic dance of the seven (laughs) veils.
1: Yeah. That's just
2: brilliant. Isn't that
1: amazing? (laughs) She's just making it up as she goes along.
2: (laughs) And, Paulie, didn't you say that that was actually his brother? Yes. That played the the uh, young boy, which is interesting because he's such a family man and his brother – uh, Augustine goes on to produce a lot of his films.
1: Indeed, and he has his mother in cameos.
2: Yes, that, that is the most exciting thing. I know that we're going to be jumping around a little bit, but it's fantastic because if you know anything about Pedro's films, one of the major themes that he always comes back to is mothers. And his mother obviously had a fantastic influence on him and um, is very much a part of his life. But in Kika, there's... Um, a show about, you know, like a, a basically a book group show about discussing books and one of the characters comes on and his mother plays the interviewer and what she says is she says that my son directs this show and so he got me this job because it's the only way he can spend time with me and I just <laughs> think that's beautiful. <laughs>
1: You can see there's probably a little bit of real life parallel. Yeah, that
2: was Pedro's real mum.
1: (laughs) You know the
0: the sense I got from uh, his first available feature, which is Pepe Lucy Bomb Mm -hmm. and
1: other girls. I think
2: and no, no Pepe Lucy Bomb and women like my mum.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's got so many translations. I think Pepe Lucy Bomb. Just leave it at that.
0: It's the same time as John Waters is in the states mm. doing his stuff, but this felt more subversive, almost. Oh, like it, it almost makes John Waters look tame. Like he really puts it yeah, out there in such a, a casual and embracing uh, manner, and I, I kind of like that. And this, is, yeah, again, this is a theme that will go through all of his work. This idea of extremes and uh, very non-mainstream ideas of what sex and love are just being totally accepted from the word go.
2: And almost with a puckish kind of pushing the envelope. You know, he, he is a provocateur, but he does it with such a cheeky glint in his eye that there's something about Pedro's, you know, pushing the envelope that we forgive him and think is kind of charming.
1: Like, Pepe Lucci Bomb is so rapey. (laughs) <laughs> so, yeah, so much going. And then, yeah.
0: as his labyrinth
1: of passion, yeah. you know, his, yeah. first, his first two mm-hmm. films are kind of, as you say, reeky. yeah. And you're yeah. kind of like, mm, don't know about this, but but he's like John Waters in that. I, I think it's interesting you bring up Waters because I got a huge Waters feel from his first couple of films because there is that sexual abandon and that perversion, and yet it's seems complete. It's coming from an innocent place. It seems like it's coming from a place of just innocent expression and there, there's an ebullience to it. And, and you know, the rapists get their, their justice desserts. Mm-hmm. On the rape thing, I, I want to sort of connect
0: that to Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down that we were talking about before from 1990, mm. which is one of my favourites of, of his films. But And that's very sort of, you know, uh, rape is a big part of that film. Yes. And he kind of does what Peckinpah got criticised for in, in Straw Dogs. And I think the reason he gets away with it is that he'll deal with topics like rape but he won't deal with the idea of victims like he doesn't he doesn't consider any of his characters to be victims and i think that's that's kind of why there's not that controversy mm. about what he does
2: there's also i think it's really interesting because i've looked at at that because you know rape is such a controversial subject particularly in film and you know you watch a few of pedro's films in a row and you go why am i not really offended by this and it's also to me the the concept of him exploring human nature and a lot of the people um a lot of the characters that um do rape in his films are closer to the animal there's kind of a bestial quality to them it's like what 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 you become if you turn off your humanity. And I think he explores that in in several of his films. It's really interesting because in Matador, which I absolutely adore, there's actually an attempted rape. Antonio Banderas, who is one of his regular actors, his character in the very beginning of the film, even though he's the hero, attempts to rape a woman um, but fails. And I think that that says a lot as you um, continue with the story. It says a lot about... Um, this character is somebody who 's tried to turn off his humanity he 's tried to become a bullfighter you know he 's tried to turn away from what makes him human, but he 's failed and that 's the very thing that you know makes him good in, in essence
0: and he doesn 't and, and and he also doesn 't treat that as as a, a rape would be treated in really any other film absolutely because she completely the, the woman he tries to rape completely retains her Strength and doesn't seem victimized, whereas he looks diminished yep, afterwards. Absolutely. He is a shell of himself yep. right afterwards.
2: Mm. It's fascinating, and what a what a fantastic, unexpected! Again, it's it's just that you know that glimpse of um, Pedro. Just shocking that people often have these fantastic, unexpected reactions. Um, and I know in that when he comes in to confess what's happened, um, the first person he kind of he comes up against is Carmen Maura, who's playing this doctor, and he says, "I've just raped somebody," and she looks at him and goes, "She should be so lucky." <laughs>
1: so bizarre! And and he's he's not going, afraid to show no, Really what,
2: what
1: did you just say? <laughs> labyrinth of passion really establishes for me, and also in Pepe lucey and all his films, mm. is that Planet El Motiva, his universe, is a place where people don't have filters. It's a world without mm. filters. It's a world where people express their sexuality on, based upon impulse. They express their thoughts based upon impulse. Nobody holds anything back. There's no, there's no sort of you know, longing looks and subtext. There's this is what I think. And you know, screw you if you you know if you don't agree. Um, well, that's all,
0: I, I don't think he's um. At, at first, I started to think, oh, he's into melodrama, but it's so much more than that. It's like he's taken the idea of the soap opera and just mm. ramped it up like on on a huge yep. thematic scale. Mm. Mm. And he, he's really the greatest soap operatist in the world. Mm. Mm.
2: I think it's interesting actually because a, a lot of people talk about. Hitchcock being a fantastic influence and obviously was. But the other influence that I think is amazing and his plays were considered soap operas of their time and you just look at some of the story devices he uses. He uses twins, he uses disguise, he uses murder, you know, his tragedies, people die. I think that he draws a lot of his stories, you know, it's that Shakespearean story that he's telling over and over again. His stories are fantastic, big, rambling, um, multi-stranding stories that he somehow Weaves together and pulls all these strands together, which again is a fantastic Shakespearean trait.
0: I, I think if there is an overarching theme to his work, it's the idea that, and this is from like Labyrinth of, of, of Passion and uh, Law of Desire in 87, all the way through to to his most recent film, um, A Time of Recording, The Skin I Live In, in 2011, is the idea that love is this great melting pot? Like it's all the same thing, whether it's romantic, sexual, uh, familial, platonic. He he sort of just puts it all into the same tank and says it it it's all the same. It seems to be a positive the way he's depicting it. It doesn't. He's not. He's not judging anyone, but he is saying that all types of love are the same, which is which is quite daring in itself. Yeah, that is
2: absolutely a
1: bold statement. Mm-hmm. And I like that that nothing is ever treated as a taboo either um, because of that worldview. Uh, everything's just kind of up for grabs. And even though these characters all operate on impulse, unless it's, you know, unless it's rape, they're never victimised for it, which I like. Um, mm. Yeah, whether they're gay, straight, bisexual, transsexual, it's all, you know, it's all perfectly fine, um, which is really quite a nice vision when you think about it.
2: Absolutely. I think that he's... Ex- Exploration of love in all its forms is really important. And also um, I think that the other major theme is his exploration and fascination with the mystery that is a woman. You know, his female characters are amazingly strong and resilient and flawed. It's wonderful to see those depictions of women on screen Um, And that also goes with this fantastic ensemble that he seemed to develop. I think Carmen Maura, watching all the films in chronological order and seeing I think it's the first, she's in six of the first seven films or something like that and watching her development as an actor um, in basically this ensemble that almost ran like a theatre company. You know, in one play you're playing the romantic lead, the next you're playing the strange mother. All the characters are vastly different. But it's that concept that always comes through his work of play which I think is wonderful to watch. I think that's why I, I was a bit scared when I, start, when, um, I decided to do Pedro and um, I went back and watched all his films and some of them I hadn't seen for years because, you know, when there's something that you really loved at a certain time in your life and you think, what if this has become dated? What if I'm not going to get out of it, you know, what I got when I first watched it? And no, <laughs> his films were as fresh and as exciting as they were the first time I watched it and that was, you know, exciting. I'm going, why is that? He's captured a moment in time and, you know, something within himself and his actors that is very exciting and very vibrant and very alive.
0: I find that he his reactions to his own films are quite interesting because the two films that he considers failures... Uh, 1986's Matador and 1993's Kika. Oh. Wow. T- yeah, t- two of my favorites. Oh, I think Kika
2: m- is probably my all time favorite Pedro film.
0: Kika's amazing. Mm. And Matador is this uh, oh. incredible. So, like, it's, it's almost the most thematically rich of all of his Absolutely. films. Absolutely. I love Matador and as well. And it
2: looks so beautiful. It just looks, it's its almost over the top in that gorgeous, you know, the, 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 the great swirls of silk and stuff like that. But it just looks so gorgeous and what an opening. He is a master of openings and that's one of the best.
1: Wow, so he, I, I know he's not terribly fond of uh, 1983's dark habits either. I think that he'd sort of considered that he was a bit kind of studio mandated on that one Um, even though it's still very him you know it's still got that kind of you know freewheeling approach to sexuality it's adorably blasphemous
2: it's fascinating when you look at dark habits because I almost see dark habits as a companion piece to the much darker bad education exploring, you know, the nuns. But it, it's interesting, again, it's his compassion and his forgiveness for women is very strong. In Dark Habits is very light. It's got a happy ending, whereas um, Bad Education is is a much darker, much more painful film to watch. It's very raw. Well, that's the
0: autobiographical film yeah. that he'd spent years trying to make, I think. Mm. And, it's, and it's so narratively complex. It really, he tells the story. And he's not afraid to jump chronologically. He will jump around in order to present you with the story in the most emotionally satisfactory or compelling mm. way and he, he almost makes no apologies for the fact that he's just going to show you the middle and the ending and the start and and yeah and he does that so well in 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 bad mm. education which which really enhances the the story I think
2: absolutely that is but Bad Education is um, one of the films that I almost think you, you need to watch and then give yourself a moment and watch again because I felt myself kind of adjusting. I was, you know, you're so used to the Pedro style and with this one he's taken another leap. He's constantly evolving as a filmmaker and with this one he's taken another leap into something much darker and much more personal and really confronting that you almost need a few views to, to, to get the impact of that film.
1: It's um. Is anybody else as big a fan of What Have I Done to Deserve This as me?
2: Oh, I love that film. I just
1: adore that <laughs> film. I think that was the first of his – that was his fourth feature. Mm. And you you're saying, Pez, that he's constantly refining his style. Mm. And you kind of get – like Pepe Lucci Bomb is quite rough and quite kind of – it's an amazing arrival of a distinctive voice and so kind of confident right off the bat but still a little rough and then refining a little more through Labyrinth of Passion and he's in, in Labyrinth of Passion he kind of introduces the multi-strand and then on Dark Habits but I think what have I done to deserve this? He really refines that early, I think it's the apogee of his early style.
2: Absolutely.
1: Of yeah, that. those
2: big, messy, raw, real-life Spanish apartment building, many stories all filtering into one, yeah, absolutely, that's like the apex of that. It's a brilliant film. And, again, you know, it's got one of the best opening sequences ever.
1: Yes, with the Aikido <laughs> dudes in the dojo and her, uh, the cleaner, Carmen Maura, imitating their moves. Oh, in the exactly. background, yeah. You're like, you really have to look to find the We had moments. to
2: rewind that about three times. We just found that so amusing. It was fantastic.
0: But for all this stuff, like, we talk a lot about... You know, all, all the sort of... Uh, like, from a construction point of view, all the things he does, but there, are the, um, there is some real emotion in these films, and the ending of uh, a film like High Heels is so strong and and and, and subtle. It's a really underplayed ending, and, and you tend to think of him as this outrageous, over-the-top filmmaker, but he can really, really dial it back and underplay
1: things when it needs it. Yeah, he's, his characters have a great emotional core. I remember feeling... Watching uh, live flesh, the abused wife of Javier Bardem's mm. partner and her kind of, yeah, obviously early in the film she's latched on to Bardem and then later she latches on to young Victor and you just feel so sad for her towards the end. Like she has these couple of scenes that she just plays heartbreakingly and you're like, this per- poor person, nobody will love her the way she deserves. Mm.
2: And I think he's a really um, master story um, manipulator, really um, like – with those emotional heartstrings, it was really interesting with the High Heels um, because the mother in that is just a character that I want to throw rocks at through most so of selfish. the film. But uh, so selfish. And he does that fantastic thing where he sets her up and in the very end he redeems her and it's just wonderful and i go you cheeky bugger pedro you've sent me you've done that you know it's it's all done on purpose like his films are so wonderful and messy and they're so about real life that it is that thing yeah that we that you sometimes forget that there's this master craftsman behind it who is very carefully manipulating you the audience's emotional line
0: what what do you think it is about that period from all about my mother onwards, that sort of launched him into the mainstream. Like, was it just happenstance that they noticed him at that film, or
1: I, I think his style's become more elegant. I think he's dialed down a lot of the more outrageous elements. Like, there's mm. like I think Kika is kind of the apogee, or, or, the, or the 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 apex of his outrageous kind of the stuff that he set up early on with Labyrinth of Passion and Pepe Lucci Bomb. Like, Kika is just. Absolutely, f- like adorable just m-
2: fantasy.
1: Yeah, but just again, a mind pe- Anybody who hasn't and- seen
2: Kika, please go and watch it. But don't necessarily watch it with um, a, a friend at first. I watched it with a very good friend of mine, um, and there's moments in that film where I turn to her, feeling self conscious, going, "What is she going to think of me showing her this film?" <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> Cheeky, it's. Um, but uh, I think that Paulie is right. You know, there there is the a definite evolution of him as a filmmaker It's really interesting. When we come to what I think is kind of the third evolution, there's the first evolution, which, as you say, um, kind of peaks with um, what have I done to deserve this? Then there's the second, which is almost theatrical. Um, You know, there's this wonderful feeling that I get about it. They almost look like plays. They're so beautiful.
0: I I did notice that. Mm, Women on the verge
1: of a nervous breakdown. Which is
2: wonderful. And then he goes into um, a period where he is really dealing with more serious material. And for me, all about my mother is where we see his craft coming together again and becoming more cohesive, Um, even though I do love high heels and... um, of the films onward from there, I do. I find them probably a little bit patchy in All About My Mother, and then going on to the absolutely fabulous Talk to Her.
0: Talk to Her is one of my favourites. Talk just, to Her is. My God, he's. He, I mean, he hasn't lost any of his edge. You're right, he's become more refined in oh, his style. absolutely. But the ideas in this film are so. Just the concepts are terrifying. I know,
2: and it has one of the – there is a a scene in this film that sticks in my mind and, you know, it's one of those scenes in films that when you close your mind you still see it and it's the bull fight and when you see the bull and it's his concept of cruelty and beauty in one and it's, you know, like the bull has blood, like he's drenched in blood and it's obviously so cruel. It's just such – a horrific image to me that when I close my eyes I see it, it's it's incredible, you need to see that film just for that, but Talk To Me is a very personal film for me because it marries two of my passions. In the very beginning of this film um, there's a wonderful dance company uh, run by Pina Bausch and they actually have a segment of one of her pieces, Cafe Miller, as the opening of this. So I was in heaven watching. I noticed this film. she turned
0: up, and I, I I did think of you. I thought, yeah. you know, Pe- Pina and a Pedro film. <laughs> Pina, that's got Pina be, and uh,
2: Pedro coming together. Pe- yeah,
0: Perry's most happiest yep. moment. Um, but I
2: think it's a fascinating film talk to her because again, with his exploration of women, that I I find this, and you know. Please disagree, but um, that the male characters in this are really exploring their um, feminine femininity. I don't think it's a mistake that the the males are caring for the female characters. You know, physically, literally bathing them, looking after them, and the women are exploring that masculine side. I think that one of his cruelest characters is the female matador, and the way that she. Cuts love off from people. Says a lot about the way that he often um, presents male characters
1: and presented male matadors in Matador.
2: Absolutely. Even though the male matador is more feminine, he's the one that talks about love, who comes to visit, you know, visit her, and he's set up as you know the um, egotistical character. So I think it's a fascinating exploration of femininity within men.
1: Yeah, I mean, Bad Education was the first. Spanish film to open the Cannes Film Festival. And it was, as you said before, Lee, a personal story that he tried to make for years. Now, I'm not... Like, I, I guess Pedro's avatar is the writer-director character in the film. Mm. He does the uh, Woody Allen thing of... Every character is sort of
0: a, a version of him. There's always a director or a writer or a yeah. writer director, or
1: mm. you know, he does a lot of. There's a lot of uh, yeah. his films that where a filmmaker is one of the main characters. Mm. It's like uh, Law of Desire, which seems to be his kind of nightmare. Yeah. Um yeah. where a writer direct mm-hmm. a cult writer director in Spain is stalked by a character played by Antonio Banderas who <laughs> has an obsessive love for him and is kind of crazy. And um and it's it's interesting, that theme of imprisonment kind of comes up quite a bit. Because mm-hmm. you you have got that there in Law of Desire, then you've got Time Me mm-hmm. Up, Time Me Down, which is possibly the sweetest film ever made about Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> and there's characters being imprisoned like there's uh whether it's Live Flesh's um Javier Bardem, who's kind of imprisoned in a wheelchair and always sort of, you know, try to make the best of that situation and and prove Mm. that he's more than, you know, that he is what he used to be, uh, to uh, talk to her when the female character's, you know, imprisoned in comas. The skin I live in, Mm. which is all about imprisonment. An incredible kind of imprisonment happening there. Mm. And then, of course, Bad Education, you've got characters who are imprisoned by their past. And then, of course, there's possibly my favourite, of Pedro's films, which is Volver.
2: It's an incredibly gentle film. I think the wonderful thing that struck me when I first watched uh, Volver was how immersed I was in what it would be like to be Spanish. The film really makes you feel what it would be like to be Spanish and I think that there's quite... Um, again, I think that Pedro would have drawn on his childhood and, you know, his experiences of his own family because he did come from quite a small village originally in the creating of Volvere, To me, it's a very gentle film, even though there is murder, like there is in a lot of, you know, Pedro films. But, you know, it, it's got a sweetness and a real lightness of touch about it.
1: And then we, uh, from there he goes on to Broken Embraces, which really puts the Hitchcock influence on Front Street. Um, yeah, and looks good. I feel like there is a heavy Hitchcock influence. Like a lot of his films seem to start as these kind of, you know, mad melo- sort of melodramas and then end up turning into Hitchcock films. You know, there's usually someone on the run or someone being hunted down or someone. I actually
0: also got Goddard's uh, Pierre Lefeau oh, yeah. in there. Just a little <laughs> bit, just aesthetically. It's a pretty superficial comparison, but I do find it, I don't, I, I don't know if he's if Pedro's really influenced by the filmmakers, but I, I tend to see a lot of that in his film's DNA.
1: Yeah. I think I think in particular, I think Hitchcock is, I think he's possibly stated that somewhere. I'm not sure, but there's, mm. yeah. Um, but Broken Embraces really puts it out there. Um, but the funny thing is that most of Broken Embraces kind of works as a romantic comedy, and yet it doesn't seem like one from outside, and it has a lot of elements that aren't romantic comedy-esque, but yet it... Mm. it is kind of basically what it is, which is some kind of a feat in itself. But then he turns to my other favorite of I think my my favorite's of Volver, um What have I done to deserve this and his maiden outing into horror, which is the skin I live in.
2: Yes. Oh, this is what an amazing film. film.
1: It traverses Park Chan-wook territory in terms of screwed up vengeance plans <laughs> and and you know but it's you know it's, it's it's those unmistakable almodovar riffs on identity and on sexuality and mm. on forgiveness and on um as you said pez there's a lot of char- male characters in his films all the way through are have real control issues they're yeah. always trying to they see a relationship as, as something to control and yeah. of, obviously a of women are often too strong for that and buck mm. against that control and, uh, you know, the guys end up kind of getting the justice hurts. And, and also too you're saying that the, the women in his films have much more of a capacity for forgiveness than men. Yeah. And that's something that's really highlighted in The Skin mm. I Live In as well.
2: Yeah, it's very dark. I to me um the skin I live in I was very excited when I saw this film because I thought this is next stage, Pedro. You really I really saw the master filmmaker with this film. There's some shots there that are just composed so beautifully. That fantastic shot where the lead character looks in the window and the dress is reflected onto her. You yeah. just it's just all about theme again. There's a very there's a quite a brutal rape in this scene, and I don't think that it's you know a surprise that the character that actually uh, rapes is dressed as a beast. He literally you know has yeah. no humanity again,
1: and just so luscious and and, and stylish, and it's really Elmodovar's dark side,
2: mm. uh, and really we- pared back. So you really get to um, explore all of the elements of the theme and the story that he's telling. And again, in a way, back to tie me up, tie me down, which are, you know, really, in a way, their stories about two people in a room.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's again, and it's a very contained setting, and 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 those themes of imprisonment back up again. Yeah. But yeah, just just fascinating. Um, Fascinating psychological study.
0: I, l- I like that idea that he's in—he's in a new phase that we can—and you identified sort of distinct phases in his career the, that I'd seen myself mm. watching his films chronologically because there were sort of these clear markers. Yeah, I like the idea that Skin I Live In sort of marks this foray into a n- new territory. Um, that hopefully he's continuing with his his next film, which is out next year, I think.
1: Yeah, it's called I'm So Excited, and stars Antonio Banderas and Penelope Cruz in a film together for the same time.
2: Oh, I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited. I can't wait. It's aptly wait. titled.
1: <laughs> <laughs> if, if you're going back to discover these Amalmota Ant- films, check in his early films. I think six of his first seven films he makes cameos that are very amusing.
2: There's a fantastic cameo in his second film where he actually appears as a punk performance artist.
1: Which is what he did during the 70s. So. Absolutely. <laughs> but he also dickishly hires
0: actors who look like him for cameo <laughs> roles, I've noticed. He does Because I thought I picked him go, a few Ooh. times. And no, that's no, not him. <laughs> not him. Um, but, yeah, Pez, thank you so much oh, for thank you. introducing me to so much of his early work.
2: Awesome, thank you. I'm so glad that you've watched it, and I just want to urge everybody go to your DVD store. Get out a whole heap of Pedros tonight, sit down, kick back, and um, enjoy.
0: <laughs> and we'll see the rest of you next month. <laughs>